For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, and I'm here today with Dr. Brandon Henry. Brandon is a friend of mine. You can also read his story in my new book, Curious. I hope you pick up a copy of that on Amazon. Um, we've also got some virtual book discussions happening, some other things around Curious. So wherever you are, you can kind of jump in and be part of a community that is reading it together, talking about the ideas together. And so you can find all of that information on enditforgood.com. would love to connect with you in those ways. So um, Brandon, welcome. I'm so excited we get to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Um, so your story is a little bit incurious, but like with anyone's stories, you know, all of us really have like multiple books worth of life experiences, yeah. Yeah, yeah. things like that. Um, so I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk a little bit more because we've had so many interesting conversations um, that were beyond the scope of the book. But I really just start us out with telling us a little about yourself in case people haven't read the book yet. And then I want to dive into kind of your experience you just have gotten through teaching this addictions class um and your experience as a therapist working with people in uh addiction looking for sobriety your person uh experiences as a person in recovery all of those things what you've learned about sort of what what it is that we're missing what is it that we misunderstand about addiction yeah. so start us off with a little about you yeah so a little bit about me um it kind of as it says in the book uh which Again, uh, big appreciation for you writing that. Um, but uh, yeah, so my story, I grew up in a family that loved me. Um, wasn't perfect by any means, um, but I kind of lived in two worlds. So we had the addict world um, that was at home that nobody talked about. And then we had, I guess, easiest way to say it would be kind of a fundamentalist uh, Christian uh, kind of world that we would go visit. Um, and so the tension between those two things of, uh, you got to be perfect and you got to do everything right all the time. And then on the other end, uh, just kind of chaos. <laughs> so I grew up just feeling that tension uh, my whole life as a kid. Um, yeah, I uh, dealt with a lot of stuff uh, in terms of like 
getting bullied, um, not not feeling safe. Uh, a lot of times, in my own body, some sexual abuse stuff in there, and um, but then having this other world where you had to put up a front and look like you're perfect and nothing's wrong. And so, uh, by the time I was probably eight or nine, I think, got introduced to pornography uh, by older kids, which uh, in a lot of my work, I talk about uh, that particularly prepubescent introduction of pornography is itself uh, kind of an act of abuse and violence because uh, no eight-year-old is able uh, to understand what's going on or be able to comprehend it. And so uh, that kicked off just kind of using pornography uh, consistently from that point on. Always felt horrible for that. Always felt massive shame for that. Um, couldn't talk about it with anybody uh, and did everything in the world I could to make it better. And so try harder, try harder was kind of my, you know, kind of my mentality with stuff. Uh, nothing worked. <laughs> I did all the church uh, accountability stuff. And I was, I was like, tell people I'm of the generation where our accountability was, we would give the computer cord, the power cord to each other. Cause that was, you know, the only way uh, we could, we didn't have phones or anything like that. So but did everything, prayed hard, worked hard, uh, all the things, and nothing got better. Um, then went to a Christian college thinking that would make me better. That didn't work. Uh, everything just kind of kept, kept getting worse. And then when I was introduced to alcohol, I was probably, I think I was 20. I always joked that I was sort of a late bloomer. I waited until I was 20 to have uh, any alcohol. And first thing I drank was like half a Corona and it was horrible. There was no lime in it. It was just gross. And I uh, was terrified that I'd be an alcoholic like so many people in my family. And um, yeah, nothing happened. And it was scared. Second time I drank that I remember um, was some friends gave me some, some rum and I drank the whole bottle. And it was the first time that I could remember feeling okay. Um, and yeah, I loved it. I hated it. I hated myself, but I also loved that feeling of just kind of obliterating myself and not having to feel anything. And so when I drank, it was always just to feel okay. Like I didn't really drink to have a good time. I was just drinking just to just to feel a little bit of okayness. Um, and then that progressed. We live in the Mississippi Delta teaching school. Um, I was, yeah, I was super poor and a drunk. And so like the blues started making sense to me. So I started listening to the blues about that point. Uh, but again, didn't really feel like I could talk about this stuff with anybody. Still thought I had to perform my way out of it and uh, did everything in the world I could. And remember, I guess I was probably 24. Uh, I'd already gotten married. Um, we were already starting to have kids. And um, so I remember driving home on the last day of school, I taught elementary school. And um, it was really as if God asked me out loud, like, hey, man, is this what you want? And I remember just crying and being like, no, this is not it. Um, but I did not know what to do. And so just tried harder. And so that eventually led to being in ministry and thinking that would take things away. And it didn't. Things kept progressing, um, kind of addictions to pornography and alcohol just kind of kept progressing. And then um, came to seminary thinking that would definitely solve it if I just learned more and uh, performed harder. Got to seminary, it didn't help. So it's kind of the theme of my story is just try harder, it never worked. Um, but I eventually got into a men's group here, uh, just kind of stumbled into it, I was, I was invited into it. And a lot of folks in the 12-step community that I'm a part of eventually gets over in. They often say pain is the ticket of admittance. 
And I've always told people I kind of got loved in sobriety. Um, there was definitely pain and it definitely, there was a lot of things that hurt. And I was, I was harming a lot of people. And, and it was the realization of the harm I was causing my family is part of what woke me up. But I, I really got loved into it. It was, I started doing kind of therapy, group therapy stuff um, for a couple of years and then had a friend ask me if I thought I was an alcoholic and I accidentally said yes. And then he gave me the big book and said, well, read this. If it works, great. That means there's a solution. If it doesn't work or if it, if it doesn't sound like you, great. It means you're not an alcoholic. And so it's like, oh, win-win. I can do that. And so read it and I genuinely thought everybody on earth thought the way I thought, felt the way I felt, and then came to realize that it's just not true. Um, and so that kind of kicked off um, intentional sobriety uh, moving forward. But yeah, a lot of my wounds started getting healed. A lot of my uh, needs started getting met. And then I got introduced uh, to the 12 steps to, to a way of getting sober and, and it finally worked. And the cravings and the need and the dependency um, in time uh, lifted. And um, yeah, that was, that was over a decade ago. And I've just been grateful uh, every day since. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. Thank you for sharing that. That's, I think, really helpful. One of the things that stuck out to me when I was doing interviews for the book, I interviewed more than 60 people, very different backgrounds, not all related to recovery or anything like that, but was how many people who had struggled with addiction, like their description of addiction and society's portrayal of what's happening in addiction are like vastly different. I mean, just, you know, they're not talking to each other. They're just saying, you know, when I say, what did it feel yep. like? Like why, when you took yep. the, whatever it was you were taking, your drug of choice, mm-hmm. what was that you felt? And the, yep. the answers were always, I felt okay. I felt yep. safe. I felt like the world had everything in its right place. Yep. It was kind of like, you know, rosy. There was just a rosy glow around. Like it, it's just this totally different thing from, oh, I just wanted to feel like yeah. the king of the world. And like, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I was just high, yeah. like what is high? What does yep. that even mean? Like, can we get some more words around that? And the words people put around that are so different from yeah. what, you know, the the kind of stigma of what it is people are looking for and what Absolutely. it is that keeps them coming back. So talk a little bit about your perspective now on sort of the things that make people vulnerable to addiction. What is it that they're really looking for? Yeah. So even kind of tying that in what you were just talking about is a lot of people think uh, folks use alcohol or drugs or whatever else um, to have a great time. And maybe it started that way. Uh, very possibly um, it was pleasurable. Right. And it is uh, in its own way. But there's in a, one of the primary books that I love to use and teach from is Gabor Mate's In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he talks about this in depth. And so uh I would encourage people that want like the actual scientific understanding to go there, but a, a simple way to understand it that I've heard described is kind of this idea of the hedonic threshold. So pleasure threshold. And so you think about um, if you just had a scale, right? And the baseline zero is just, uh, just kind of feeling okay, right? Most people on earth wake up and that's maybe that's what they feel just kind of okay, right? They feel safe. They feel loved. They feel just kind of normal. 
And so then these other events, you know, you have a really good meal with friends. Let's say that's like a 50 on that scale, right? Or you, um, yeah, do something really exciting, climb a mountain, stuff I like to do. That's like 100, 150. And then we, uh, you know, drugs like cocaine and stuff, the way it works with the dopamine and all the stuff in our body is like, man, that's like a thousand, right? And methamphetamines would be like 10,000. But what we don't understand is for addicts, because of these things they're predisposed to, because of, and I'll talk more specific to ACEs, those things that make us vulnerable, uh, Mate does a really good job of understanding like we are, the experiences we have a kid actually make us start, our baseline is lower, right? So we don't have as many dopamine receptors. Um, and so when we wake up, it's like a negative 100. That's the baseline. And so using drugs or alcohol is not to get us to a thousand or 10,000 using drugs and alcohol is just to get us to zero, just to feel okay, just to feel how most people wake up, just feeling fine. That's why most people use drugs and alcohol. It's just to feel decent, uh, not great necessarily, just fine. Um, yeah. And so one of the biggest misconceptions that I think people have particularly, so I just got finished teaching a uh, week long intensive here in Jackson. And then last week down in Orlando and it, it, feels pretty consistent with students I have, which are all graduate level students. So they're really bright, really smart and studying this stuff. And yet they're always surprised to understand that you're not born an addict. And that's a misnomer even in a lot of the rooms that, that I participate in recovery in is that I was just born this way. And it's just not. Uh, I think Mate uses the example of uh, genetics is kind of like sets the block of stone, right? The block of marble, but the environment is the chisel that chips it away. Um, and so you're just not born this way. Um, it's your experiences. And so those the three big overarching experiences that I talk about that set somebody up to be vulnerable are a lack of attachment, a lack of safe attachment growing up, um, trauma, right? Which is not just bad things happening to me, but it's trauma is, it changes the way I view myself and the world around me, like these experiences. And then emotional dysregulation or, or stress. Right. So trauma, lack of attachment and, and stress and not knowing how to deal with that stress. Um, the ACEs is one study. So my PhD ended up being uh, just kind of looking at ACEs, adverse childhood experiences and pornography use. Nobody had studied that. And so they've studied ACEs and like literally everything. Like there's a study on ACE and like you just punch it in any kind of behavioral or health related issue. And consistently it's shown that the more ACEs, more of these 10 questions you answer in the affirmative, the higher the vulnerability to a disease, uh, addiction, uh, behavioral problems, just over and over. And so um, for myself, and I guess an overarching view of like, what are these ACEs? It's like, uh, it's basically abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. So was there verbal or was there physical, emotional, or sexual abuse? right? Was there emotional neglect, which is huge. Emotional neglect is just as um, impactful as physical neglect. And then was there household dysfunction? Was there separation of parents that could be through divorce or, or death? Um, was there um, uh, somebody in jail? Was there mental illness, suicidality? Uh, was there drug use in the house or addiction going on in the house? This sort of thing. So the more you answer in the affirmative, the higher the vulnerability to lots and lots and lots of things. And so uh, for myself, uh, I had six out of those 10 ACEs. And when I look at kind of what, is, what do studies say about alcohol addiction, um, I was 1,400% more likely 
right? To be an alcoholic than somebody with zero. So that's a massive, <laughs> like yeah. that's not a you're born this way. That's a massive indiscrepancy um, in terms of it's something that happened to me. And so addiction, as my sponsor told me, addiction was not my problem. It was just my solution. It just happened to be a really crappy solution that caused me lots of problems. And so when I started looking at like, what was my real problem? It wasn't using alcohol, it wasn't pornography. What was my real problem? What well, was pain? It was feeling alone, it was feeling unsafe, um, to which alcohol and porn were the solution. But again, crappy solutions that ended up causing massive problems for myself and those around me. So when you look at those, the, the causes, that yep. as you've been in school, as you've been practicing, all of these things have have solidified and crystallized to you as what's really going on here. Yeah, um, and I think it's probably important to say too: not everyone who has those experiences, Absolutely. you know, becomes addicted. I love yep. how you said it's a vulnerability. It's a, it's yeah. not a foregone conclusion, but it does mean yep. that you and I sitting next to each other, and I have zero aces from my childhood. Yep. That just you, you taking a drink, and me taking a drink. Yep. That's going to have very different, it, it, it is probably going to impact us in very different ways. Yep. And my yep. vulnerability for that becoming a problem is very low. Yours is very yep. high. And that's just really important to know going into things yep. that yep. this is where we are. So when you think about what is sort of causing, um, what is behind addiction when it does develop yep. in someone's life, what's behind it, then roll over to the treatment side Mm -hmm. What is it that we're offering people and does it even meet the need of what they actually yeah. need? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, man, that's, that's to me the crux of it. And it's functionally what we're doing now for addicts, particularly kind of as you focus in the book of like our incarceration does not remedy any of this stuff. In fact, it actually makes it worse. So if the things that make me vulnerable are trauma, which is deep pain that that changes like who I am, the way I view myself changes me. It's not just a bad feeling um, or a bad thought, right? It's a thing that changes me from the inside out. So if it's trauma, a lack of attachment, which we all need safe, secure attachment, meaning we know somebody's got our back, meaning we know we know in our bones that we are loved and cared for. And then the third is emotional dysregulation that that I've got to know how to handle stress. I got to know how to regulate my own emotions. Um, and I don't need to be in a, in a situation where that stress is so overwhelming. So if that's what's going on with a person, then treatment must involve addressing those three things. Rarely, like even inpatient treatment, rarely uh, treats all three of those. Uh, sometimes it does. Um, sometimes there's, there's actual trauma-based uh, therapy or, or how would I say that, like research-based um, therapeutic interventions for trauma, right? Being trauma-informed is not enough. That Trauma-informed, a lot of people say that, and that just means they read a book, and lots of people read books. <laughs> but like actually knowing how to utilize um, therapeutic interventions that can help somebody, uh, yeah, work through this trauma. And it's not, talk doesn't just get you through trauma, right? You have to, you have to, it's, it impacts the body, so you have to work with the body. Um, we often think like most of our memories, this stuff is just in our brain. But if I ask you like, where's your nervous system? Your nervous system is in every single part of your body. And so your body holds the memories and you have to work with the body in order to overcome and heal trauma. And so it has to do that, it has to teach people. So you gotta learn new coping skills. Um, most therapeutic practices do that, inpatient, outpatient. Usually they're teaching you some skills, that's great. Um, but they may not be working with the core wounds and the, the healing that's necessary there. 
And then attachment's the last one. Like I've got to learn to feel safe in my own body so that I can learn to feel safe with others. So, you know, if I'm doing good group work with somebody that could be, again, like an intensive outpatient or inpatient, that's going to be helpful. Incarcerating somebody actually does literally the opposite of all those three things. Like we know that somebody that's put into a prison system is going to experience some sort of traumatic incident. Like um, I think you actually mentioned that in one of the classes, like the statistics of like what, it, you know, sexual assault happened in the first three days. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, you're most likely to experience that in yeah, yeah, very just the beginning of incarceration. Yeah. yeah, early on, and then so we know people are experiencing trauma. We know it's not safe and secure attachment. Like at best, maybe you're maybe you're in a cell with others. Maybe it's not harmful, but it's not safe and secure. Um, and then yeah, you're not. Nobody's teaching you how to deal with stress. In fact, you're feeling more stressed out um, because you know all the stuff that's happening outside and around you. And so incarceration is literally the opposite answer. Um, it, it doesn't help any of the stuff that helps to overcome or heal from the vulnerabilities that create uh, uh, addiction. And so, yeah, I, man, there's so many things that can help. And it's just we as a culture are not doing those things because it requires, I think, just because it requires more from us. Mm. It's a lot harder. It's a lot easier just to say, well, they were born that way. It's their problem. Just put them over there. and They're outcasts. Yeah. And I was talking to another guy who's in recovery and he was saying that he feels like even um, a lot of his pathway of recovery, he did a lot of work with 12 steps yeah. and things like that, yeah. um, which was very helpful to him on, on one yep. side. And he said, on the other side, nobody ever asked yep. me to like go into yeah. what happened to me. It was, can I work the steps? Can yep. I like... And there is a great deal of value in all of those yeah. things, but, yeah. it, but it never brought up his own yep. childhood abuse that he had been through, things like that. Yep. And so for him, that that part of the healing came through a totally different path Yeah, um, yep. that was really helpful to him to go. Yep. It's not just can I not use yep. today? It is how can I how can I go deeper into yep why did I get there in the first place? Because I yeah, want to be, I don't just want to be sober. I want to be whole. Um, and it was so yeah. powerful to me to hear him yeah. talk about that. And just about the difference between Maybe it was you that told me one time, you know, it's um, if you're not drinking, but you're now punching holes in your walls, like, yeah, yes, yeah. you can claim yeah. your coin, you can be sober, yeah. but you're not whole, you're not Absolutely. healed. And that is, that's not what we're, it's not just the ab Absolutely. the abstinence from something. It is yep. that that should be part of. We want that to be part of yep. you healing and living this sort of uh, thriving life. Totally. So, and that so that abstinence. I'll just jump on that because it's yeah. one of the big things. Is often we think sobriety is abstinence. Now I always use the analogy, but abstinence is just I'm clenching my fists. I'm you know gritting my teeth. I'm not going to do that thing again. And I always say that's work for a cumulative zero humans ever on the face of the planet. Sobriety is, yeah, I'm not going to do that thing, but it's, I'm going from clinch fists to open hands to where, all right, I'm going to get something new. What is that thing that I need to replace it with? And so my work with people, I actually don't focus on the stopping the negative behavior until they've already learned or received or uh, experienced the healing of what they needed in the first place. Cause it's once I have what I need, now I can't let go of that thing. That's mm -hmm. not, not useful to me anymore. Yeah. It's like, if your cup is full of one thing, you can't just ask someone to like dump it out. It's like, yeah. well, we can't survive yeah. with, with totally yeah. empty cups that they have to, yep. they're going to be filled with something. So until there's a new good thing, 
yeah. in the cup, the yeah. the unhelpful, harmful thing really can't be let yeah, go. Because it's serving a purpose. It's a solution. And that's most of us think it's just problematic. It's like, no, it's doing something. And if you ask somebody, particularly that's in pretty intense addiction, you ask them just to stop that thing. You're at, you're basically asking them, hey, I want you to feel uh, just completely miserable. I want you to feel unloved. I want you to feel totally out of control. I want you to feel um, just basically live in hell because we don't want you to do that bad thing anymore. And it's like, well, that's that's not a good ask. <laughs> like, yeah. But if I ask them like, hey, help, let me help you learn how to live in a whole way to where you don't feel that pain or to the degree that it's, you know, killing you like it is. Now let's give let's give up that negative behavior. Then it's possible. Yeah. yeah. So talk about you and I are both uh, part of the faith community. That's part of the air we have breathed our whole lives um, in the Christian world and culture. There's so much about that community that looks at addiction really solely as a sin in large part that was very much kind of how I grew up. I don't remember anybody ever specifically telling me that. Yeah. It was just sort of part of the air that I breathe. Um, yeah. And you and I have had conversations about this. It's something I still kind of struggle with, sort of the yeah. the line between this and faith and yeah. addiction, sort of medical, psychological, all the other components yeah. that are part of that. And then also this faith piece and sin and where does that all land? Talk through where you are on your own journey, yeah. thinking through that as a believer. Yeah, no. So that's, do we have, you know, like 12 <laughs> hours? Uh, the long and short of it's basically, yeah, I learned, I learned to understand my addictive behaviors as sin, meaning it was a choice I was making to, you know, like rebel against God or something like this. And so I did all the things that if that were the case, I did all the things right that should have cured it and nothing worked. And so one of the ways I offer this to students in my class, often in Christian circles, at least the ones I'm in, uh, addiction can be referred to as idolatry, right? That I'm choosing something in place of God. And that makes sense if addiction is this choice I'm making to escape and, you know, like to not deal with my problems, all this stuff. But if I understand addiction is coming out of this place to where, and there's, I mean, there's MRIs that have been done on people that there can actually be like brain damage, right? In the sense of a, like a traumatic brain injury, like it looks similar to that sometimes. So if it's this thing that's impacted me physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, all these things, right? It's this, it's this massive wounding that happens that now that there's this open wound, I'm vulnerable to an infection, right? I'm a vulnerable to an addiction. Well, that's different, right? So I always take students to Exodus 32 where Moses goes up on Sinai and the people are hanging out with Aaron and they're, they get impatient and they're like, hey, build us a calf so we can worship it. And then they go, okay, this is our God. Well, that's idolatry, right? I'm choosing to, to pursue something that's not God. I'm choosing to pursue something else. And then I ask them to go to something. And I mean, there's like, you just look at basically any interaction Jesus has with people. But for instance, like Luke 8 uh, talks about the woman, Jesus going to heal uh, a guy's daughter. And there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. It says she's, she's done everything. Nobody could heal her. So she has tried to stop this physical infliction in all the ways possible to her. She's done everything she can. And in that culture, she would have been considered un unclean. So she would have been an outcast which I think that's addicts in our culture. We are, you know, addicts are the outcasts that have been put outside the camp. Um, and so she comes up to Jesus and just grabs his robe and is instantly healed, right? Um, and he knows it. And he goes like, hey, who touched me? My power kind of went out for me. Um, she comes up to him later and, and admits that she did. 
he says, you know, daughter, your faith shields you go in peace. And it's like, that's way more in line with what's actually going on with addiction is this person has this, and it's, it's a hard balance because it's on the one hand, I am 100% responsible for my addiction and my choices. Like, I don't, I don't think that just because I have these problems and this pain that it takes away my responsibility, but I'm 100% responsible and on the other hand, I'm 100% powerless to do anything about it. So that woman who had the bleeding, she was 100% responsible to pursue whatever healing she could find. And yet she was 100% powerless to do anything about it. That's way more in line with what, what addiction is actually like. Um, and so you just look at the two different approaches of like idolatry is, you know, God confronts and calls them out. And um, it's like, hey, turn away from these false gods, all this sort of thing. I, I, you know, this, this pain, this addiction, this, this physical, spiritual infliction, Jesus consistently confronts them with mercy and, and then asks them or, or uh, allows them to change and be different. And so I think that's a huge, huge misconception in a lot of Christian circles. Um, and I think it's mainly because we don't fully understand addiction. And we, I think most people don't want to because it's it's very challenging. And then, yeah, there's so many facets of like, if we really understood addiction, we as a church would have to change our our approach to addicts. We would have to love them different. It would, it would be costly to us. We don't want to do that. That's really hard. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't see it anymore as, as this idolatry. I think I could understand it as sin in the sense of like, Sin is like nuclear fallout, right? And it impacts and influences um, destruction on everything, um, but not in the sense of sin that I grew up with. Of you're making bad choices, making mistakes, you know, doing the wrong things. If you're listening, you're interested in solutions so that fewer people are harmed by drugs or addiction. Hop on our website and grab my new book, Curious, A Foster Mom's Discovery of an Unexpected Solution to Drugs and Addiction. It is a memoir of my learning journey on these issues. It starts when I'm nine years old and continues through the founding and growth of Endeavor Good, but it's really more than a memoir. It includes the stories of people like Michelle, who found a unique path to sobriety, and stories like James, who walked with his son through addiction and has incredible wisdom to share with other families. It's really more of a memoir on a mission to share my journey and the people that I've met along the way with you. There are better solutions. Grab a copy of Curious for yourself and maybe one for a friend. And let's grow a movement toward life, health, and hope. I remember one time when we were talking about this and something that you said stuck with me. Uh, you said, you know, I just, I like, because you see the devastation in your own yeah. therapy practice, yeah. working with people, yeah. you see yeah. what it does to families. And yet there's this tension between it is so destructive. And yet yeah. I can empathize with someone trying to feel safe. Yeah. Yep. Even yeah. though and that safety comes at such a cost and yeah. it's, and it's an illusion of safety. It's not the safety they're really looking for. Um, yep. But yeah, I, that's I, such yeah. a, such a hard tension, particularly for folks that grew up with an addict and their families. It's even the big book talks about an, an addict's like a tornado and like everywhere they touch, man, it's just destruction. And that's true. And that, that, I guess the way I think about it is like, that's an external representation of that internal reality for the person. So like whatever the destruction is outside, they're feeling that and experiencing that, you know, times a hundred on the inside mm -hmm. um, from their own childhood, what they grew up into from the shame of doing that to people. Most, I can't think of anybody I've worked with that's in addiction that doesn't feel 
massive regret and shame of the the harm they caused others. Maybe they don't know how to articulate that or what to do about it. Um, but it's it's always there. It may be covered up, right? It may be buried somewhere else, but it's always there. So it's it's yeah, it's just so much tensions to hold, <laughs> which we don't culturally we don't like to hold tensions. It's right. the black and white. That's a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when you think about different kinds of addictions, um, you know, I was kind of further into learning about this issue before it really struck me. Well, wait a second. If these vulnerabilities are are way before, you know, the heroin or something yeah. like that, yeah. then, you know, is the heroin addiction really any different? Is it driven by anything different than the, you know, the shopping addiction or the technology addiction mm -hmm. or the, you know, pornography yeah. addiction, whatever it yep. is, like substance yep. addiction or process addiction, a gambling yep. addiction, whereas yep. some of those certainly are more socially acceptable addictions. Oh, yeah. yep. um, but, you know, you're not going to be incarcerated for a gambling addiction. It might yep. completely destroy your life and your family. Yep. Um, yep. But, but you can continue down that path until you do something, yep. you know, stealing money for it or something like that. Whereas with other addictions, substance addictions, but only to certain substances, you know, you could yep. be addicted to alcohol, didn't get arrested for the alcohol addiction as long as you weren't you yep. know, drinking and driving. How do you think about that? Because that really, for me, is one of the things that just continues to, you know, I think for a whole host of reasons, incarcerating people for substance yeah. use is, is unhelpful and very harmful to them. Yeah. But yeah. even when you just think about the addiction side of it and that there's, it just struck me that, you know, okay, if, if all addictions are kind of coming from these core vulnerabilities that look very different in people's lives and you yeah. know, it's very complex, I'm not trying to, to draw it down to something very simple, but yeah. what, you know, is that even, is that even fair? Or is it yeah. like, no, there really is this sort of sliding scale of addiction and addiction mm. to one thing is really is a whole lot more harmful than addiction to mm. another thing. And different kinds mm. of addictions need to be addressed in very different ways. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, like, how do you think about those kind of different kinds of addictions? Yeah, no, that's it's really complex. And so I appreciate like, yeah, the caveat is this is going to be an oversimplified explanation and, and thought on this. So they are very complex. And at the same time, if the addiction is the solution, not the problem, I, for me, I'm always looking at like, all right, what's this doing for you, right? And so if somebody's using an upper rather than a downer, well, what's that doing? Maybe that means because, you know, they're more of a depressed uh, person. Maybe they, they have lo lower serotonin levels, this sort of thing. Like, so maybe they need uppers uh, to adjust that internal chemistry or if they're taking downers, like uppers to me sound horrifying like i've got so much anxiety <laughs> like using an upper sounds just awful right but a downer like alcohol or weed or something like this like that ooh, that sounds good right it's going to bring me down to where i can feel normal and i think you're absolutely right like culturally for us we can look we would look at somebody that spends you know hours a week using pornography and what that's doing for them and it's releasing oxytocin which helps them uh, feel loved, feel cared for. It's releasing, you know, dopamine, serotonin, all that stuff, helping them feel reward, helping them feel purposeful. All these things help them feel safe. And we would condemn that person um, for in lots and lots of different ways. Uh, and, and, you know, it is destructive. Absolutely. Like uh, pornography, uh, particularly pornography addiction can be so destructive to a marriage or to kids or to so many things. 
And at the same time, we culturally look at somebody that works 70 or hour, 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week. And, you know, we're impressed. It's like, wow, this person, look at what they're doing. They're getting the exact same chemical cocktail out of that as somebody that's using pornography for 20, 30 hours a week. So why is one okay and one's not? Um, and it is, it's just kind of the way we justify things ourselves and different, you know, different parts of our cultures. Alcohol is fine. I always joke that when I lived in the Delta, I was not an alcoholic. I was just a normal drinker. And then I moved out of the Delta and was like, Oh wait, not everybody's like this. Um, and so, yeah, it's just different. But for me, it's always looking at like, what, you know, what, what purpose is this serving? Like it's doing something for you. If it wasn't doing something for you, you wouldn't do it. Um, and so like, let's figure that out. And then let's just figure out a new way to meet those needs. Um, and that's not always easy, but yeah, I think it, it's a lot more effective when we look at it that way. What would you tell to parents? I think, you know, the more that I learned about this, the more it's um, maybe part of the reason we don't really want to look at it is because as parents, we're all trying to do our best. Yeah. The, yep. All of us have scars from our childhood. I don't, sure. you know, it doesn't matter if I had a wonderful childhood, which I did. Yep. I think I had, you yep. know, like the top 1% in the world probably of just happy childhoods. And yet sure. I still have things that I struggle yep. with. I still have unhealthy coping mechanisms that, you know, have swing in and out of, you know, of use in different areas of my life. Sometimes food is yep. this massive challenge and I have sure. this very unhealthy relationship with it. And sometimes it's healthier. Um, you know, it, all of us are doing those sorts of things, but it is, yeah. it's challenging as a parent. I have my oldest son is 15. Now I have three boys just thinking about, you know, how here I've tried my best to do what yep. I can to provide them with those things to help them feel safe and loved and all the things. And yep. yet there's, I just have this great recognition of like, that doesn't yeah. guard them from ever struggling. Yeah. It doesn't guard them. You know, every child receives things differently. Every child has other internal things that are happening. Their, yep. their physical makeup is different and all of that. So it's, it's hard, I think, as a parent, because it's hard to receive what you're talking about on one hand, because yeah. you want to think like, no, I've, I have done yeah. everything right. And my kids yeah. are, they should be fine. Um, yeah. And if they're not, does that mean that I'm a terrible person? Yeah. You know, did yep. I completely. So how do you, you know, you've got it yourself. Like, how do you yeah. navigate that as a parent of yeah. trying to look clear eyed and trying to offer what your children need, provide what they need. And yet yeah. also recognizing that, that that's not this, you know, fail safe. Like, oh, yeah. I've got, you know, I put all the right ingredients in. So I, yep. you know, it's just this other form of kind of, uh, I do X, Y, and Z and I get A, B, and C as a result. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no. So, uh, yes, that's so hard. And that's basically every, I've got four teenagers. And so every time I teach this class, it takes me about a week to not feel awful. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's even in the first step of the 12 is I am powerless over blank, right? I'm powerless over my kids. I'm going to do that. And yet I'm responsible. And so I'm going to do the best I can to meet their needs and give them, you know, as much security and, and care as I can. And I'm not in control and I, I can't. Um, and the harder I try to control, you know, uh, bad things tend to happen. And so that it's, there are outliers. There are things, the ACEs talk about what happens in the home, not what's outside the home. And I think there's a reason for that. And there's a lot of studies on this that is efficacious is looking at, obviously traumatic things can happen outside the home. Sexual abuse can happen outside the home, all this stuff. But if you, what we need as kids is not perfect parents, just kind of present parents, right? Parents that are just attuned uh, as best they can. And that's not all the time, not 100% of the time. 
I think once they saw it's like 30, 35% of the time, if the kid knows you're there, that's kind of good enough, right? So it doesn't have to be just perfect. But if I'm a kid and let's say I go through something really uh, hard, let's say I get bullied, right? If I'm a, if uh, that's a lot of people have experience with that. If I'm bullied and I'm in a home with high aces, meaning it's chaos, meaning everybody's kind of self-centered because they're just surviving, meaning there's abuse and it's unpredictable. Well, I'm probably not going to go to my parents and tell them about the being bullied. So now I'm holding that to myself. Well, if I'm holding that to myself and trying to make sense of it, chances are that's going to be pretty traumatic because a kid's only going to understand the world um, through them being the center of it. So they're going to assume that bullying is entirely because of them. But if I'm the same kid growing, you know, going through the same bullying, but I'm going through a home with zero aces, meaning it's predictable, it's secure. Uh, we talk about, we don't avoid things. Um, I feel safe with my parents. Then there's a much higher chance that I'll take that bullying and go talk to my parents and then receive from my parents then be able to say, oh, you know, hey, sweetie, like, that's so sad you went through that. None of that's true. And they help me comprehend, they help me understand, they help me process this. Well, now I had the same experience on one, one hand, if I don't have safe supportive parents, it's traumatic. On the other hand, it's just a bad memory, right? It hurt, but it didn't like stick. And so, yeah, for us as parents, we just do the best we can and we work on our own selves and we grow and we heal and we try to provide safety and teach our kids to be whole and we screw up and we know how to repair and yeah, um, but we keep at it. And that's, to me, that's the difference um, more often than not as parents to just kind of keep at it and their kids know, man, they got my back. Like they're, they're for my best. Mm. Yeah. And I remember you telling me one time too, that, you know, people process, people receive and process experiences so differently, Yeah. Um, yeah. which is so helpful to me. You know, even I was talking with my brothers one week um, at Christmas, this is a couple of years ago, and I have three older brothers and we're all really close in age. So it's like four of us within five years. Yeah. And so one of my brothers and I were talking about like how we handled emotions in our home. Like we didn't, yeah. you know, if you had a, um, if you were going to like make a case to my parents for like why you, you know, somebody should or shouldn't be able to do yeah. something or like they're, you know, they're being mean to me, you need to tell them to stop or, you know, whatever. It was very yeah. like based on logic. You couldn't use how you yep. felt as part of it. Yep. It was like, yep. give me like the logical argument. And I had yep. wonderful parents, but like just not yep. big on the emotional yep. argument for this. And so, you know, here's my, my brother and I were like that. Yeah. That's like kind of the message we took is like you, if, if something, if you want something to stop, you better have like a logical reason for it. Mm. You know, whatever. Yeah. My other brother sitting there listening to us. And finally he's like, I literally have no guy, no idea what you guys are talking about. Like, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. his, his take from that. He's like, I don't, I yeah. don't know. Maybe I was like working out in my woodshed when all this was going on. Yeah. You know, and we're like, yeah. Oh, what do you mean? Like, this was kind of like the, the flavor of our home. This was kind of like yeah. how we just did things. But to him, he didn't take that at all, you know, from it's, it, like yeah, it just so is wild. this fascinating, like, so even yep. for really traumatic things, um, I think the example you used was, you know, some people can get, you know, hit by a bus and walk away with just a scratch. And some people yep. get hit by a bike and die. Like just the yeah. impact yep. is so different to me. Yep. That's such a, I think it has made me as in these last couple of years as I've been learning, 
just take this step back from trying to be like, like you said, the black and white, put the boxes together, put yeah. the bow on top. Like, yes, yeah. we can, we can draw lines from A to B to C there. We know exactly yeah. Yeah. why it happened and what, and you yep. know, all that. And, and now instead, we're in control. Uh, yeah. And now, right. yes, now <laughs> I get to get back in control again. Um, instead, like just take that step back and say, this people are so complex and you know for me as a believer that's just this beautiful part of being Absolutely. you know created and just it's so complex and and amazing um and that also means that the way we process our lives is going to be mm -hmm. so complex too and just because one thing happens to you and happens to someone else doesn't yep. mean that you're going to take the same takeaways from that doesn't mean yep. it's going to impact you yep. in the same ways and so yep. like taking that step back instead of trying to pin things on everyone of like, well, X, Y, Z. It's like, no, yep. let's, why don't, the only way to know is to really ask them and, and for yep. them to be able to over time, try to access even what's going on subconsciously, yep. which I think, <laughs> I feel like yeah. at this point in my life, I think I really only understand about 5% of why I do Maybe, what I yeah, do. No, You know, there's real. like 95% yep. of myself that I'm like, I yep. don't, I, it is down in there deep somewhere, but it, yep. I don't even know, you know, mm. what it is. Why is it that I do this yeah. thing? Even though I'm really trying to be attuned to myself and try to understand yeah. myself. But anyway, and that's, um, no, and that's so much part. I, I've mentioned Mate so many times, but probably the thing that sells me on his book is like such the cure to so many is just to either uh, our approach to addicts or our treatment of addicts or all this stuff or ourselves is just compassionate curiosity. That's one of the titles of his books, just compassionate curiosity. Like that's the ticket. Um, and so if I can have that stance with myself, I'm going to be much more whole and healed so I can be more of a gift to others. And then same thing, like, that's how I want to approach whoever's in my office, whatever the thing is, whatever the harmful thing that's going on in their life. And it's easier, obviously, if I'm, you know, I'm not living that life with them, so I'm not getting hurt by them all the time. So it's easier. Um, but yeah, man, when I can take that stance, so much, so much better stuff happens. Mm. Anything else you'd like to share as we wrap up? what you love to convey to people who are out there trying to learn, trying to, to live more yeah. passionately so, and understandingly. Yeah. I think it's, uh, man, you know, what else, there's so many things that popped in my head just now. And yes, I, I think it, it always comes down to a sense that people need to fall. So I, I guess, yeah, last thing, our minds, right. Where our brains, our nervous system, where so much has happened, like any other organ in our body wants to heal. If I cut my arm, my arm wants to heal, but it needs the right kind of environment. If, I, if my arm gets cut and I stick it in sewer, that's going to be bad. I'm going to get an infection, but if I cut my arm and then I clean it and I protect it, hey, good things happen. Same thing with addiction is our, our and I believe as believer, like God designed us to heal, which is incredible. Our brain as an organ in our body also wants to heal, but the right environment is safety. Uh, connection, right? And lower stress. And so if we can somehow provide that for somebody who's in addiction, they have a much, much, much better chance of getting sober uh, than if they stay in the chaos and stay in the, you know, just the feeling alone and all that stuff. So yeah, that'll be my last, last thought. Mm, that's good. Of this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brandon. Appreciate you yeah. taking the time my and pleasure. cheering. Yeah, for sure. um, yep. We appreciate well, it. Thank you for this work. This is good stuff. All right. Thanks, yep. And you can hear um, Brandon's story, parts of it he didn't share today in my book, Curious. I'd love to have you join us on that journey. Come join us over at endoforgood.com and you can be part of virtual book discussions and things like that where we are just 
driving into ideas and trying to figure out what that better path forward is. Um, and Curious offers some ideas uh, and allows you to kind of take what you think will work and go take some action in your community to make this possible. I hope, you know, when Brandon and I are retiring that um, the world looks at addiction in a very different way and has very different responses to it. And, you know, one day our great grandkids are going to look back and go, I, I, I can't believe you, hmm. you used to approach it in this way. And it will seem like something um, from a, a time gone by that is like, wow, I'm so glad we don't look at it anymore in these really harmful ways. I'm so much, you know, I'm so glad that, that we understand it better. So I think we now, we do understand it better in many um, pockets. And now for that, for that research, for that knowledge to be able to permeate our culture is the thing that needs to happen over the next year. So thank you for the work that you do on that. Yeah, page. no, that's good. I'm also, yeah, the idea of retiring sounds great. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks Christina. All right, we'll see y'all next time on the End It For Good podcast. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.